Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. of yesterday, fighting for one more first down, one more yard gain, one final score which brings victory after 60 minutes of battle on the gridiron. Tonight, we'll explore the world of gridiron greats. Welcome to Gridiron Greats Football History and its memorabilia on the Gridiron Greats Publishing and Broadcasting Network in conjunction with Swick Enterprises. We're live from the wonderful Connecticut home of Gridiron Greats Magazine. And I'm Bob Slick, publisher and editor of Gridiron's Great Magazine, and I'll be your host for the show. Gridiron Greats is the only publication in America which focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. We cover 150-plus years of football history and memorabilia. You can find us on the web at gridirongreatsmagazine.com. Yes. It is at this time I'd like to introduce my co-host. He's a senior contributing writer to Gridiron Greats Magazine, a football memorabilia historian specializing in pre-World War II items, in particular Red Grange, and also Seattle Seahawk items, in particular Steve Largest. He hails from Portland, Oregon. Mr. Joe Squires. Joe, welcome to the show this evening. Ah, oh, I love it. I get uh, I, I get goosebumps every time I hear you uh, do do your football cadence. I love it, Joe. It's good to be back. We're in the middle of football season. A lot of games. I go back to my my somewhat tired statement. Not any given Thursday, Sunday, or Monday. Anything and everything will happen in the National Football yep. League. Especially, especially in their 100th year anniversary celebration. It's fascinating to me to see what's going on. It's yep. amazing. And the one thing I got I to gotta come out and say, I, I'm not overly impressed with their 100th anniversary commercials, to say the least. Yep. They, they, just they could go back a little just more. Yep. Couldn't agree more. I want to see more, more, more clips of black and white stuff. Uh, I want to see more Don Hudson running down the field, Sammy Boss slinging a ball. I just, I, I want to see more. This is their history. They should be embracing it. It's just truly amazing to see what we see in these commercials. But in any event, I want to move on and talk about what you and I are going to talk about, which is something very interesting. We're going to talk about tonight your incredible uncut sheet collection before our special guest is on. Give us a little background. How did did you actually get involved in collecting uncut sheets? I know you and I have talked about it privately over the years, and and, uh, you you just got an amazing collection. So give our audience a little little background on how you got started. 
Yeah, probably. Yeah, it, it, thank you. Uh, for our listeners, uh, the readers will get a glimpse into uh, one of my favorite items in my Uncut collection and the uh, next publication of Gridiron Greats, where I'm the, you know, I'm the uh, spotlight collector, which I'm very happy you know, to be proud. Uh, but I probably started getting into Uncut Sheets about 10, 12 years ago. And uh, I believe I wrote an article on the 25th anniversary of 1984 Tops in 2009. And uh, th- th- that's probably around 2007, 2008 is when I first started kind of seeing uncut sheets and going, wow, those are really cool. Uh, so I, 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 I know with 100% certainty, a couple years before that I wrote that article in 2009, I had at least quite a few 80s sheets, including 1984 ABC, you know, series. The C series is the one with the Marino Elway rookie card on it. Uh, So a lot of it was just being fascinated with how the sheets were assembled and printed and or cut and just, you know, how. Uh, It was just kind of cool. It was just nostalgia at first just to have a framed, uncut sheet of 1984 tops hanging on my wall. And it's still probably mm-hmm. the one sheet that I have the most of, the one the one year I have the most of. Uh, at, at various points of my collecting life, I've been, I'm sure, just like a lot of listeners, my collection has been all over the board. Uh, I remember having quite a bit of unopened wax, um, you know, high graded, high high graded cards, mid grade cards. But uh, the one thing I've never gotten into is autographs, and I've I've got a few autographs. Most of them are Steve Largent, but uh, but <laughs> at, at at some point, probably eight nine years ago, we started having guests who started talking about uh, unopened wax and guesstimates. You know, that fifty percent of unopened wax was fake. And uh, it kind of it kind of ruined my appetite for unopened wax. Seeing as seeing as many uh, trimmed 48 leaf cards coming through the system that were slipping by the graders, you know, kind of turned me away from high end cards a while ago. So at some point, I really doubled down on sheets. If you think about it, you can fake an autograph, you can trim a card, uh, you know, you can reseal wax. But you can't, you can't fake an uncut sheet. It's, it's Very one true. thing. Very true. I, I mean, uh, provenance of jerseys. I mean, were you know were those you know were those Johnny Unitas's cleats or were they, you know, the wide receivers? Uh, you know, I mean, at some point, provenance. You're taking a lot of, you know, you're putting a lot of uh, faith in the, you know provenance of a card, uh, you know, or of memorabilia. You know, uh, jerseys autographs, all of that stuff, you know, and at some point, uncut sheet is the only thing that can't be altered, faked, etc. And I just began to realize that probably eight, nine years ago, that I really doubled down on uncut sheets. Uh, mm-hmm. and it, it's, it's become my favorite thing to collect. It's, it's a glimpse into how sets were made and oriented, and uh, it's pretty fascinating. I like it. So how many, how you know, many, how many sheets, how many different sheets do you actually have in your collection, and how far do they go back to? Uh, I tried counting them about three years ago. I moved, uh, moved houses. I used to keep them down in my 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 card room, my man cave, and at one point we moved houses, and uh, I moved them all to my office. At about the same time, we moved offices. So at some point, I was like, I got to organize and catalog these. And I started unrolling them, taking pictures of them, and keeping track. And then I I got, uh, I made it about halfway through and and got distracted and had to stop. I would guess I have 250 uncut sheets, would be my guess. Uh, Wow. The oldest oldest uncut sheet I have uh, appears in Gridiron Greats coming up, and it's my 1948 Mm -hmm. Leafs set. It's uh, it's the first Mm -hmm. series of the 48 Leafs. So it's cards one through forty-eight. Uh, cards, cards one through forty-eight, and uh, it, it's at least two sheets because there's uh, four cards that overlap. Um, and just that was pretty cool to pick up. 
uh, somebody listed it mm-hmm. on eBay, and I had uh, two or three friends reach out to me within half an hour of it getting listed on eBay telling me about it. And I was able to reach out to the seller and, and uh, get him to end the auction and, and send it to me. Wow. So, uh, I was able to pick up uh, a couple of the 1950 Bowman, including the first series, uh, uncut sheets in BFT last year. Uh, 50 Bowman, I've got a 48 Bowman. One of my favorites is uh, 52 Small. I also have, uh, I wrote an article about 57 Tops football for Gridiron Grace probably mm-hmm. three years ago. And I have a partial uncut sheet of 57 Tops with Bart Star and Zeke Bratkowski card. <laughs> so it yep. gives you a lot of uh, gives you a lot of insight into that. I mean, for years in the '57 tops, the Zeke Bratkowski card was one of the rarest. And when you see the sheet and you see its top left position, you understand why it's the rarest. Because you know it, it, it's miscut because it's you know a corner card. Yeah, I mean I can damage corner cut, cards. Yeah, cutting it. Cutting back in the 1950s uh, was an imprecise science with, uh, you know, basically a guillotine type of paper cutter with the gentleman probably, you know, hauling a lift of sheets every day and cutting the cards up. So it's, it's amazing that the cards ended up as straight as they did in a lot of cases. And uh, inevitably, that's why we see a lot of offcuts and miscuts uh, well oh, yeah. into, the 1970s, into the 1970s. Today, everything is pretty much laser cut, and the cutting machines are much more advanced than yep. they ever were um, I mean, from way when, back when. when you were a kid, when you were a kid collecting cards, a young mustachioed Bob Swick, uh, did you worry about <laughs> centering, or did you just want the card? No, I, I, I had no conceptualization of, of any type of reading. I basically yep. read my cards over and over again. I played with them. You know, I, I always say this, tell the story. I used to put them on top yeah. of the TV set when the two teams were playing, and uh, ah. I actually put rubber ba- rubber bands around them. You know, all, all the stuff. All the, you know, you did back then. You know, I didn't. I didn't imagine forty. Uh, I mean, uh, fifty-five years later, I'm going to say, "Wow, I'm looking at my retirement here." So let me somebody just leave them in yeah. the packs and uh, and put them away. No, not at all. So. Um, you know, it was not, I've, I've never been overly concerned condition-wise of my collection. Yeah. But for me, for me, just, you know, and again, we talked about this in the past, you, you, the breadth of your collection and uncut sheets is just, is just utterly amazing. Uh, it really is. I, I really don't know many collectors, especially on the football end of it, uh, who have uncut sheets uh, as as many as you have and, and in the uh, as far back as they go at the same time. So it's very interesting to... To, to look at and yeah. see. Do you do you have a favorite sheet besides the 48 sheet and the 57? 48 and 57 are probably in that order my top, my, my favorite. Uh, if I had to pick a third, it would be the uh, the first series 50 Bowman because it's got the Doak Walker, you know, uh, okay. the Doak yep. Walker card, the upper left-hand corner. Card number one of 1950 Bowman. And uh, mm-hmm. a lot of people consider that card number one of the Doak Walker to be his rookie card. His 48 Leaf lifts him, lifts him as, uh, you know, in, still in college. I think he went to SMU. Uh, so 50 Bowman is, you know, him as professional. So... Card number one in 1950 Bowman is probably that that set is probably my favorite, and it was a it was a very expensive set or uh, cheap buy, but yeah, you know, it's the first time I've seen one. That's um, amazing, truly amazing. And again, um, correct me if I'm wrong. You have a 65 sheet, right? Or you don't have? I it. do. Yeah, Tops. I do. I bought it yeah, BSD. Okay. Three years ago, I believe. Uh, yeah, okay, it's I pretty frayed. Yeah. Pretty frayed, and you know, it's got some, it's got some love on it, but it's got the Joe Namath rookie card on it. Uh, yeah, uh, yep. it, it's pretty cool. The white whale that I've yep. got, what I remember is, uh, you know, ten years ago when I got this 48 leaf sheet, I started a thread on a football chat room talking about. Uh, talking about, you know, does anyone know what a sheet looked like? Because I had a lot of miscut sheets or miscut cards, you know, that showed like the adjacent cards. So I started to piece it together, and I had probably, 
you know, I knew where about 11 or 12 cars were. And then at some point, uh, a bunch of people stepped in, including our guest today, Scott Alpaugh, stepped in and said, here's what I think the sheet looks like. Mike Thomas put it, put it together, and suddenly we had a visual of what the sheet looked like. And about a week later, that 48-leaf sheet appeared on eBay. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm not shy about telling people I would love a 35 chickle uncut sheet. It's my white whale. So I, I, I figure the more I talk about it, the more, the more uh, I'll have deja vu, and hopefully one will appear. <laughs> and I'm, uh, I always keep my eyes open at any show I go to looking for any type of uh, sheets you might be interested in. The most I've ever seen, and I've bought and sold several sets of them over the years, were the uh, – 10-card and 8-card and 4-card strips of uh, the 1960 clear football set, which for whatever reason, there seems to be a lot of them here in Connecticut because that's where I bought them all. And I bought them over the years. And um, it's just interesting. So I I don't know why why we got so many here in Connecticut. The only theory I had was New Haven Paperboard uh, did a lot of cutting for taps back in the 1960s. So there's a lot of uncut Tops baseball or miscut Tops baseball cards uh, in the general New Haven-Hartford area for whatever reason. And I find out years later they came out of New Haven Paperboard. My brother-in-law, who owns Phoenix Press, um, told me a few stories about how they would get uh, an overflow of Tops sheets there, and they would help cut them up and then ship them back to uh, Pennsylvania for distribution. So that was quite a while ago. but. But it's um, it's an interesting, you know, you're, you're right in what you say. To me, it's unique. It's it's difficult to to counterfeit those. It's difficult to trim them. Yada yada yada. All that. So you really got a you really got a nice collectible. And then you see the history of the you know the printing of the cards, so on and so forth. What's the newest sheet you actually own though in your collection? What 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 was that question again, Bob? I'm sorry. What's the newest? Uh, or more, more, the newest sheet that you actually oh. own. Nineteen eighty-eight tops. I think okay. I've got right. three of them. The three series. I tend to end most of my collecting around nineteen eighty-eight when Steve Largent retired. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. And uh, yeah, because I've seen. Yeah, and I'd say I, I would say I have the most nineteen eighty-four tops. It's just because okay. it's very star-studded. And uh, when I see it, it comes available for a certain price. I'll buy it. Mhm, mhm. No, I, I, I can, I can see that. And uh, I saw it in the early '90s too. There was a lot of uncut sheets that went went out in the market because of the uh, just sheer volume of cards being printed at that time. Yep. So I used to see a lot of them at shows. And, but at yeah. the same time, uh, you know, your collection is just, uh, just amazes me. And, and seeing that 48 sheet. Thank you. Finally, uh, as a photo or a JPEG for the article, uh, really uh, incredible piece, truly incredible piece. And, so, and Joe, what's interesting are, is, I, oh, what's interesting, I think about the one that got away, and I want to say like eight, nine years ago, I forget what auction house, but they had the 26 Spalding, you know, Sports Card of America uncut sheet, and it was blank backed. Uh, and I didn't notice it for sale, or else I definitely would have bought it. Uh, but they had a full uncut sheet of, you know, of the Spalding, 26 Spalding. But they had it listed mm-hmm. in baseball, and so I never noticed it. Uh, and that, that always frustrated me is why they didn't say this, you know, put this in every category. So uh, yeah. the one that got away was 26 Spalding. And as you know, somebody wow. eventually bought that, cut it up, and got it graded. So. Wow, wow. Unbelievable! What a shame. Piece yeah. of uh, sports memorabilia, sports collecting memorabilia history, cut up. So yeah, cut up is what yep. it was. Uh, all right, and I would like to remind our listeners that Joe is going to be featured in the upcoming issue of Gridiron Greats Magazine, which hopefully will be out uh, the end of next week as our super collector. So uh, if you're interested, check the website. We'll have the ordering information on it. And, and uh, it should be a very uh, good issue, interesting issue, and an incredible cover on that new issue coming out at Thank the same you. time. So Thanks for the cover that you emailed me, Bob. I appreciate that. 
You're quite welcome. All right. At this time, our guest is waiting, and I'd like to introduce our audience. He has collected cards and been a show exhibitor since the mid-1970s. He was a former senior grader at SGC in the late 1990s. Currently, he is the vice president at Just Collect Incorporated. He currently collects vintage football, Hall of Fame rookie cards, and autographed Hall of Fame rookie cards in all sports. I'd like to welcome to the show this evening, Mr. Scott Pawpaw. Scott, welcome to the show. Hi, Bob. How you doing? Thank you. What about me, Scott? Oh, and hi, Joe. I wasn't sure you were there. Hi, Joe. How are you, Joe? Time delay. I'm doing good. I'm doing good, buddy. Thanks. Scott, thanks for taking time out of your schedule to be on our show tonight, and I want to lead off by asking you, how did you get your start in collecting? Uh, probably like most kids, started out going to the corner store, picking up a pack here and there with my cousins and my friends. Um, unlike most others, I had a very good friend of mine who was a few years older. His father was a printer, and wow. was a little, he was a bit retentive about how he collected and imparted those things on me. So while everybody else was flipping their cards, I was checking centering, registration, and building things to put my cards in, as well as instead of buying a box for $1.20, I would save up $2.40 and buy two boxes, one to open, one to put away on the shelf. So, no kidding. It was a fun, it wow. was a fun start. Like, what, wow. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry to go off script there a little bit, but no kidding. You, were, you had the foresight to buy a box of unopened wax and put it on the shelf, even as a kid? I didn't have the foresight. My friend did. <laughs> and, oh, uh, yeah. Oh, so, oh, okay. So, no, okay. I, so I took his lead. I followed his lead. That's oh, how okay. I was taught to collect. Okay. So, so oh, my God. 68, 68 69, wow. 70, I'd have six or seven boxes of each, you know, each series, or box of each series, so six or seven boxes every year. Incredible. How have you never I'm shared that with me? That's really cool. Uh, oh, because... Uh, <laughs> when I went away to college, my mother cleaned out my walk-in closet. <laughs> oh no! I'm, I'm clenching my fist and, and I'm clenching my fist and gritting my teeth, Scott. You're kidding me. <laughs> no, your I'm mom not. cleaned out your unopened wax and sold it at a garage and sale. Chucked it. You want to hear the worst part about it? My neighbor gave me his collection when he went to college. So I had unopened oh, boxes my. from 1962 on. Oh, no. And, uh, and, it, and it went into wow. the dumpster. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. I'm the only There's other stories out there. There's other people that have had those problems. So. My, uh, my mom it, threw my stuff when I went away, too, but I had crap. <laughs> well, I, I didn't have anything here that night. Wow. I... I know that when she threw it out, I had seven 1952 Topps mantles, and they ranged probably from VG to X-Mint, as well as the full 52, you know, all the top sets from 52 on up. Wow. Wow. Uh, You're making me sick to my stomach. It's not making me feel good thinking about it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ripping the Band-Aid off every time you have to talk about it. Oh, oh, oh. Well, Scott, we're sorry we're, dred- we're dredging up bad memories for you here on the show. <laughs> we're kind of wanted to be a, no, an uplifting type of experience, but no, that, oh, that's, uplifting. that's just, it's, it's just amazing to me. It's amazing to have that foresight. I mean, I mean, the only foresight I had, if you want to call it foresight, I would save some of the wrappers because uh, I just liked yeah, them. Right. I thought they were cool. I had no. I had no idea until later in life, back in the 80s, that the wrappers had different sides to them. So that became a hot collectible type of thing. So anyways, um, mm-hmm. long story short, I had, I had no idea about the collecting the display boxes and no idea until the 70s and 80s to collect the, the you know, packs unopened type of thing. So that's truly amazing. Wow. What a, what a. It's also very depressing. <laughs> Uh, the what ifs, the what ifs, my man. Wow. Oh well. Uh, well, man. 
Scott, thanks for coming on the show, man. Seriously, you're 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 you've always been one of my favorite uh, characters in the hobby, man. I just uh, I've always enjoyed talking to you. And just uh, you know, you're kind of no BS the way you cut through all the you know you know everything and just you know here here's how it is. So, uh, you you know when I first met you, I want to say it was like the uh, Chicago National 2007, 2008, something like that. Because I remember. Yeah, I told you. I imagine had a, you had a mohawk, and uh, I came up with a little nice nickname for you. <laughs> and yeah, of, of course, I don't have a mohawk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not even close. Um, <laughs> but as long as as long as I've known you, you've had some hand uh, in just collect. But it seems like your job there has grown. You know, the, you know, in the last decade or so. What what exactly do you do for just collect? Um, well, it's kind of. A little bit of everything. I mean, I spend most of my day looking at cards, evaluating cards, valuing cards, grading cards. Um, the entire day probably revolves around valuing collections, uh, processing cards for grading, processing cards that we put on sale, um, you know, basically assigning conditions, assigning values, and prepping stuff to go out to the third-party grading uh, services. And then uh, the, the best part of the day is when I'm sitting down evaluating collections that we've, we've either had sent to us to the, uh, to the office or we have inquiries via mail uh, with collections and viewing images and getting some preliminary valuations for that. So the entire day is really spent looking at or processing uh, sports cards in some fashion, one way or another. Wow, that's a dream job. Dude, that's a dream job, seriously. But do people send just collect that many collections to evaluate? I mean, that it's a full-time job almost? Uh, well, it is a full-time job, and it's – as well as the additional part of the staff that helps process it uh, once it's gone through my hands. Um, the amount of inquiries we get, we get daily. I'm probably looking through a preliminary end of it, at least via email, you know, three, four, up to as many as 10 collections on a daily basis that we'll actually process um, or do some preliminary wow. work on. And we probably have, you know, I would say three to 10 come into the office that we actually have an interest in buying. A lot of it, unfortunately, a lot of it's people contact us and they have stuff from this late 70s, early 80s, you know, all the uh, the bulk product, uh, and that gets weaned out. But uh, you'll have people contact us, you know, maybe they've got stuff from the late 70s and early 80s, but it's football. So now we've got, you know, somebody that's got six Montana rookies uh, in their collection and three Walter Payton rookies. So, huh. you know, they don't think it's worth the thing, and all of a sudden it is. What's it take for you to get on a plane to go look at a collection? I, I guess I've never asked you that, but, I mean, you, you've you've told you've told me a few stories about some just misses where, you know, you couldn't get there fast enough or somebody beat you to it, et cetera. What what's it take for you to be like? I'm heading to the airport now. You know, don't call anyone else. I'll see you in a, in a couple hours. Um, really, we haven't had too many of those situations because the competition out there, while it's fierce, a lot of people overpromise and underdeliver, and I would rather be on the opposite end of that of underpromise and overdeliver. And basically, if the collection is going to be worth me writing a check for, for $15,000 or more, then we're going to consider the travel aspect of it. If not, we either try to get it sent in or else do some additional work to find out whether or not it's going to, to function. But I also have to have a closure percentage to it. So you're, it's risk-reward. If, if there's a collection that's going to be you know, $15,000 to $25,000 and I've got a 10% chance of closing it, it's probably not worth getting on a plane for it. But if it's worth ten to fifteen thousand uh, on a purchase end, and I've got an eighty to ninety percent chance of closing it, then I'll probably go. So it's a, there's it's a myriad of factors that we uh, you look at in your way, and you have discussions with the seller, and you make sure that you have a as close to a meeting of the minds as possible in advance. Huh. Wow. So, so, so do you actually do a lot of physical traveling? I'm just curious. I mean, obviously you guys set up at shows and we'll set up at the the national and the like. But uh, what do you think, like 20%, 30%? Is, is there an actual figure? It varies. I've had, I've had stretches where I've been, you know, out of the office to buy deals, you know, three or four times in a given month. Um, there's been times where I've gone three months without having to leave the office aside from driving an hour or two for something local. Um, mm-hmm. So it kind of mm-hmm. runs in spurts. There's no, there's no rhyme or reason to when or how. Um, it's always interesting shortly after the new year uh, and before tax season, it seems to be the highest point of inquiries. <laughs> People looking to generate money to pay their tax bills, I guess. 
<laughs> so you're you're basically busy funny. March fifteenth, April fifteenth. I'm glad we didn't ask you to be on the show at that time because you'd be <laughs> talking from the airport uh, before you got your before your boarding call there type of thing. But uh, yeah, that I mean that makes sense. It's, I think in any collectible, right before tax time, there seems to be a large influx of coins, stamps, cards, whatever. People raising cash mm-hmm. to pay taxes or whatever the case may be. I was always curious about that because I know I know a couple of local dealers here who only travel basically, uh, you know, tri-state area, New England type of thing. And then I know other, you know, other people that fly throughout the country. And again, it, it has to I mean, be worth your while because it's expensive to travel, to say the least. So yeah. that's it. And yeah, we'll fly um, a lot. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, it, no the great thing is the fact, the fact of being in New Jersey, um, I'm four hours away from most of the major cities on the East Coast. So, I mean, I can be in Boston right. in almost four hours. I can be in D.C., Baltimore. Um, I can be That's in Cleveland in seven hours if I have to drive. So I can drive with a, with a, a U-Haul within seven hours and hit pretty much everything east and north and south of Cleveland and New Jersey and Boston and, and Washington. So it does give me a great right. advantage right. of not having to fly. Versus somebody yeah. that might be in, you know, war against something. I don't, yeah. I don't know yeah. if I brag about that, Scott, that you can be in Cleveland in seven <laughs> hours. Hey, Cleveland, hey, it beats. Uh, well, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take many. <laughs> Houston, you can take on Houston. Scott, I'm curious. In your opinion, what has changed as far as grading is concerned? since you left professional grading when you were working at SGC, it amounts to be almost 20 years, 20 years ago now. Yeah, thanks for reminding me of the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm a few, few years up myself, so. Uh, yeah. we, we both remember nickel pack, so. We yeah, both I'll bring you some tennis balls for your walker. <laughs> Um, I think the biggest, the greatest changes is really the amount of awareness and accessibility that the general public has to grading that they didn't have, you know, the late 90s when it was kind of just getting started. You either had to be a member of PSA. Um, Beckett wasn't even grading yet. Um, they were still putting out a magazine. Um, so you had to find either a local dealer that was a member of the PSA network or, uh, or you started submitting through SGC. And a lot of people didn't know what grading was, didn't know how to interpret it. Um, and then since then, I think the biggest per- thing that I've seen is the, the change in the value of the premiums um, on high-grade cards, where the premiums used to be very tight for a near-mint to a near-mint mint to a mint to a gem mint. Um, now they're just the exponential differentials between an 8 or a 9 or a 10, um, I think, is just an astounding difference from where it was 15 to 20 years ago. But what percentage of people come to you with their collection are still unaware that grading exists. I think the amount of people unaware is very small. I think the percentage of people that don't understand it is very large. Um, okay. Most different. people think most people seem to think that their cards, because their cards are 50, 60, 70 years old and they're in VG to X condition are actually near mint to mint or better because they're 50 to 60 years old. And uh, mm-hmm. so it takes some education. We have, we have some great resources on our website that we utilize for uh, customers that have inquiries to kind of help them grade their cards or get an idea of what their condition of the cards would be. And once, once you explain somebody the condition of their card and that their VG Jimmy Brown is not the same as the PSA 9 Jimmy Brown that's going to sell for a quarter million dollars, um, <laughs> you know, they, they, they suddenly step back. And, you know, that's the hardest, the hardest thing is somebody having an expectation that their collection is worth X and they find out that it's a fraction of that. And that's because of the difference in condition. So, so you're known as the, uh, the dream killer around the office then when people come to you with their VG, Jimmy Brown, you, you enlighten them. Um, actually, it's not as difficult, and I don't mean it as a dream killer per se, but when you explain it to them, I would rather be spending more money. I would rather be buying high-grade cards. I would rather be buying cards that have higher value. Uh, working on the same margins just means it's more money for our bottom line. Um, Correct. You know. Good point. Uh, curious. I mean, obviously, there's a – we won't belabor the, the, the topic. There's a – 
but there's a, a smear on the hobby, you know, going through right now with, uh, you know, trimmed cards, uh, you know, grading, et cetera. Uh, as mm-hmm. an ex-grader, as an ex-grader, I mean, you've taught me a lot of what I know about how to spot, you know, you know, doctored cards. Uh, you're, you, you've just, you've been a, a, an invaluable resource to me as a, as a consumer. Uh, what in what in your opinion can be done on the grading side to make to make you know to make it harder for card doctors to slip one by the goalie? Uh, I mean, you want trying to make it foolproof? In that I respect, guess let's hear them both. Well, well, let's hear them both. I uh, guess. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I don't think you can, I don't think you can ever make anything foolproof, and I don't think you can have anything be 100%. Whether it be humans, whether it be mechanical. Uh, there's always a chance of human or mechanical error. Um, I think what is important is having the right eyes and the right specialist seeing the right material. And what I mean by that is, what I mean by that is, if you have an N302, I don't think that somebody's been looking at 1999 Bowman Chrome all day long is the person that probably should be seeing that. And if that is, yeah. that's that's a problem. You don't you don't take your toaster into the electronics store and have the vacuum cleaner guy do the work on it. You want the toaster guy to do it. So I think the biggest point is having the cards looked at by the specialists that are most familiar with the material. Um, and that would help clean up a lot of the, the oversights. And that's what I hope that most of it is. I hope most of it's just oversight and the wrong eyes seeing it. Um, but, you know, it's just a matter of, of training, expertise, and, and being used to it. Personally, from my point of view, I can you can hand me cards that I'm looking at all day long, and if it's off by 164th of an inch, to me that that's huge. I, I can see that as a red flag. To somebody else, they wouldn't be able to see it if it was a quarter of an inch. So um, it's just really knowing well, what, what it I, is you're looking at. I'm sorry, well, go ahead. That's what I really don't. That's what I really don't understand because if you got, and I, I know time's a factor. Everybody wants their their cards graded immediately type of situation, and you have all the different tiers of if you want it quicker, you're going to pay more. Yada yada yada. But still, you're correct in saying, you know, if a guy is grading newer material all day long, why why is he grading the, the, the you know, 1894 mail card that when it comes to this type of situation? That doesn't really make sense to me. And at the same time, what's the criteria they're using to grade it if they don't normally grade that card? What are they researching? What are they looking at? Do they have a template? Do they have, a, you know, a... Um, a library they can go to to look at these cards, or they have one of each card on file type of situation. You know that that all plays into it, in my opinion, and and should be you know be more stringent. So if it takes you another week to get your card graded and back, it takes another week. You know you you you've actually put something into it to try to make it more foolproof. You know what I mean? I mean that's a, that's just my thought on it type of situation. Yeah, and I understand that, Bob. And the the, the premise is a great premise. But when you're looking at hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cards trying to be processed on a regular basis, when you start to slow down the process to to examine those, and I'm not trying to make excuses for anybody. I'm just trying to look at it from a practical standpoint. Um, There's going to be stuff that, as as Joe and I and and a couple of our friends have always referred to it, they they slip through the goalie. That's going to happen no matter what. But some of the the most obvious stuff were, you know, and, you know, the Frankenstein cards that Joe and I have, have had discussions with, with regards to the 48 uh, leaf. There, there's no way that anybody that's even somewhat familiar with that issue would, would not notice that. And those are, those are the catastrophic oversights that need to be corrected. And that, that is primarily because the wrong person is looking at it. The, per, yeah. the person where you have something that's very specific, where you have a card that's, you know, two and a quarter inches and somebody shaves off 128th of an inch, that, unless you're really inspecting for that, that's going to be hard to catch if it's done well. So that's one of those situations that you need the right eyes that know the striations, know the cut characteristics, know what anomalies to be looking for, rather than somebody that's unfamiliar with that issue that, you know, they wouldn't know a trimmed 1988 Topps Bo Jackson card from. So That's a really good point. How does, I mean, sorry to interrupt you, but, I mean, you talk about the abject failure. You you and I have, have a, you know, both of us love the four day leaf, you know, set. You you were going after the master set at one point with all the you know, little print defects and stuff. Uh, but we we would joke around and send send each other texts of 
just the carts that just were getting by. And it's like, so how does a, a third-party grading company just have an abject failure of a card that is literally a quarter of an inch skinnier than it should be? How, how, does, how do the floodgates open on just seeing all of this tidal wave of trimmed cards slipping by, in your opinion? I, I can't answer for any of the third-party graders um, outside of when I spent my time doing it. Um, my guess is it goes back to the toaster versus the vacuum cleaner. You had a vacuum cleaner yeah. sales or repairman yeah. working on a toaster. Got it. And, okay. you know, that, that, and that's that a shame. Um, you know, the wrong, person right. at, the wrong person looked at the wrong card. All right, let's go back to that topic then. What else, in your opinion, can you know can help shore that up in third-party graders? What do you think? I, I think, Mike, I have a a, a a a missive on that. It's you know it's a whole novella uh, of what can be done to eliminate a ton of that stuff. However, I think a couple of the easiest ones are basically just putting price point thresholds in. If a card basically hits a threshold that was submitted in, in, in a certain tier, let's say you're sending a commons tier in that's supposed to be 250 all of a sudden the card great is now in the conditions worth $500, it should, should be lit up, and now it has to get a, you know, another set of eyes inspects it. Or whether it's a $1,000 tier, and now the card's worth two grand. If you notice the PSA um, site now, when you get your cards graded, it has a reference to what the value of the card is based off of the SMR. And if that's incorporated within their software, and, you know, SGC could incorporate it and Beckett could incorporate something quite similar. I'm sure they have um, the, the, um, the framework to do that within their system. But now when you have something that now is well above the tier that it was inspected for, it should probably create a red flag and somebody should have to visually inspect that, check that off, check that box before it goes out the door to make sure that card's legit. Now, you know, is anybody going to be upset if a, um, you know, a 1989 uh, Tom Glavin card is in a nine or a 10? Probably not. But, um, you know, if that, if that card is in a glossy set now, instead of being worth $30 in a PSA 10, it's worth, you know, 3000 then maybe that red flag should be raised. Yeah. I thought that was in the software already. Cause I, I can remember Joe Orlando's deposition in the WeWag trial. I remember reading that. And as he was describing the grading process, he was talking about third, you know, first base, second base, third base, you know, and, and a certain cards within the system are flagged. You know, only one person has to look at that. Certain cards have to have two graders look at it. If they agree on the grade, it passes through. If they disagree, it goes to third base or a third set of eyes. Certain cards, you know, really nice, you know, your, you know, your Unitas rookies, your, you know, your, uh, you know, your Jim Browns, your Steve Largent, those those have to all be looked at by Reza, you know. I would like to hope that that's happening, and uh, you know, there's, there's without getting into too much detail, there's there's been a lot of stuff that's been missed, and it just uh, it's just frustrating as yeah. a collector, and it's, and it's frustrating as as a seller too, because I have to reinspect yeah. cards now when people when stuff sent to us, I don't want to buy Franken cards. I don't want to yeah. buy cards with snow. I've got to research stuff and match it up against any list that may exist. So it's 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 extra work in that you know that end too. So it's a really it's good a shame. Point. And, and hope, has, yeah. so Scott, what, no, what are you going to see? Go, Bob. It's your show, buddy. Scott. Yeah. All right. Um, now that I lost my train of thought. Oh, Scott, <laughs> let's move over from the uh, grading aspect. Unopened wax. What's the market like for it? Obviously, it's got to be pretty hot in 2019. And where do you think it's going to be heading in the future? Um, it's it's been progressing quite dramatically over the last few years. Joe remembers we it just collect. We used to open uh, have a pack opening thing. We would do it at the national. I'd do some on video. Um, and we'd open up a 55 moment at the national. Yeah, I've opened up 62 tops. We pulled Ditkas. I've opened up 58 cellos and pulled Jimmy Browns. I opened up 63 tops and pulled Mickey Mantle. Mm -hmm. um, the market itself has gone insane in the last few years with uh, with several different companies breaking. Um, the owner of Just Collect has, has started up another company called VintageBreaks.com, and they're breaking vintage wax. Uh, I see the market just continuing to increase. I hear the same lines from everybody else. It's going to dry up. It's going to dry up. Joe, you're younger than I am. Bob, you're a little bit older than I am, but you probably have both heard for years, oil's going to dry up too. I don't think it's drying up in my <laughs> lifetime, though. 
it's, it's becoming scarcer, but it's out there. It's yeah. just the prices continue to go up. The prices continue to go up, and then it's a matter of making sure that the material is legit. That's the hardest yep. thing to make sure of. It's it's not resealed and it's not falsely packaged. I would say the price of unopened wax has almost doubled in the last six years. Would would be my guess. It, and man, I used to love seeing Layton do those those wax rips. It, it just he, he had a constant smile on his face as he was doing the reveal. It was pretty cool to watch. Uh, the best ones are fifty five Bowman at the National. <laughs> Without a doubt, I was, pulled, I was yeah, thinking the exact yeah, same yeah. thing. Yeah, that yeah. was fun. But, but you know, but, good, po- good point, Joe. Eighty-eight tops wax football. I mean, I remember going to shows being, and being given away for five dollars a box. Now, yeah. you know, it's commanding what twenty-five, thirty, thirty-five a box. I see guys on really? open box. Oh yeah, I see. Well, because the Bo Jackson rookie, and you could still make a set out of a few boxes, type of situation. And I still see guys at uh, shows selling, you know, unopened wax packs in 1988 for anywhere from a buck to two dollars a pack, and people are buying them. Kids are buying them. So uh, it's, it's an interesting. It's it's interesting to see, and I agree with you, Scott. It's never going to dry up. It will never dry up. It, there will always. Uh, next year we could be talking about the greatest find the wax ever type of situation, and there's wax there. It it, it will it will always be there. And no matter, the, to me, the real old stuff is drying up completely. Now we're going to look at mid-70s and mid-80s start, starting to get more scarce and higher in price at the same time. So it's yeah. an interesting mm-hmm. market to watch, just, to say the least. Just, look, so. just think, think about the guy who bought all of Scott's old unopened wax at his mom's garage sale. <laughs> yeah. If she had a garage sale, <laughs> she owes me. <laughs> um, you know, you you you've been around the hobby for a while. I just I, I just and I dig it because I, I'm a I'm a pedestrian here. I, uh, I, I, I you and I have talked about this before. I know my station in the hobby here. I'm the I'm the guy who buys the stuff. You're the guy who scours collections. You know, you know more collections a day than I've seen probably in my life. You know, you've got to have some fun stories. You know, you know buying a collection, just vetting collections out. Do you have anything you'd like to share with us about? Something that sticks out, um, out of your mind. I, I've got a few. I mean, obviously, the pain of, of, of my story as a collector and losing my collection. But um, what I <laughs> the collection I I bought from a guy in Jersey. This has got to be about seven or eight years ago. Uh, it was primarily baseball. He had some football, so I'll keep it on topic. But uh, thank you. His pre-war his pre-war stuff was primarily type collector. So he'd have one. He tried to get a Hall of Famer from every set. And some of the stuff was rather rather trounced, but he had a 1915 Cracker Jack um, Joe Jackson. Wow! And it was like in a wow. it was like a one and a one and a half, and it was so beat up I couldn't tell him that it was legit. I said I, I can't value it unless I know it's you know, legit. He was ready to tear it in half and throw it away, and I had to jump in, stop, and I said, "Here's what I'll do. You, on my way home." If you, you know, we end up buying the collection. I said, on my way home, I'll stop at SGC and get this authenticated. If it's authentic, we'll put it up for auction. We'll split split the sale. And it ended up being authentic. It graded a, it graded a twenty, and it sold for about I think it sold for a little over six grand. He was a, and yet he was ready to rip it up because he thought it wasn't any good. Oh wow! <laughs> and, oh my word! Unbelievable. And there's a lot of people like that. They just, you know, they don't want a bad card in their, in their collection, so they'll just tear it up. Hmm. Well, that, that goes along. Go, that goes along with the concept of scarcity. We got two cards. The only two cards in existence. Let's burn one or let's rip up the other one. And now we only have one. You know, that's yeah. sometimes that mentality oh, that's becomes not prevalent. You know. No, that's not that's the move. Crazy, the move, move is to sell one privately, and then keep the sell one publicly. What was that? What was that joke you played on me at the national? Where I think you made a Xerox copy of my Grange Spalding card, and then pretended to yeah, dip it in a drink or pour water on it. No, I was actually passing it over to you over top of a candle and caught it on fire. Oh, that's right. Do you have any advice for beginning collectors in our hobby today? 
Uh, actually, yeah, it's, it's really simple. Collect what you like. Find something. Be specific. Don't be all over the board. Yep. And whatever your whatever your budget is, buy the best card or best portion of that, whatever it is you're looking. Buy the best that your your money can purchase you on your budget. Um, I've learned over these years that um, quality trumps everything. So if you have quality, you don't need quantity. Yeah. You just want quality. Yeah. And if you if you can if you can get two or three pieces that suit your fancy, buy the best two or three pieces you can afford with your budget, and then take care of them. And uh, and you'll find that in the long run, that's going to serve you so much better than just buying a little bit of everything and not worrying about condition. That is the best yeah, advice you can give, give collectors, Scott. I, I could not agree with you more on that. That Thank you for saying that. Uh, I was really lucky probably in like uh, 2005, I started collecting the Hall of Fame rookie card set. That I was I was putting together a nice quality collection. And I, I started making good friends, you know, uh, you know, uh, on the Hall of Fame rookie card set. Uh, and at one point, I bought like a, you know, Steve Van Buren PSA two card. And one of the guys on the board called me. He's like, "What are you doing? Why'd you buy that?" And I'm like, "Oh, I just wanted a placeholder." And he's like, "Stop splashing around." He's like, "Just, you know, figure out what quality you want, and wait for it." He goes, "Have a hole in your collection until you get it." He goes, you know, and it was literally the best advice I got, you know. And he's like, now you got to sell that thing when another one comes up, and it's a piece of crap card. No one's going to buy it. And it was just, uh, yeah, yeah, it was the, and, and this is a good guy who caught me early enough in my collecting where it, it made a huge difference to me. So, Jay Gross was his name. Uh, yeah. Well, Scott, we're almost out of time. I really I really appreciate you coming on the show, taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us, give, give our listeners a lot of great information and very good advice as far as what to buy and how to concentrate on uh, a collection, especially beginning collectors. And I'm going to point out, as much as I ask that question to every guest we have, I still see in the hobby a lot of people at a show. I get emails all the time. And people ask me all the time, how do you collect? What, what do you do? How, do? how do you start this whole process? And I, and I have my standard responses to them, you know, collect what you like. What do you like? Tell me what you like. You like a team, a player? You like a sport? What, what is it? And, and just take it from there. And, um, you know, it's, it's good advice. And, again, when it comes to, to actual quality over quantity, I think that's yep. what we've seen our hobby evolve over the past 20 years from the eighties and the early nineties where, you know, you couldn't have enough 1988 tops football wax type of situation to today, you know, people only have like two or three cards from the newer sets, so on and so forth. So it's really changed a lot to say the least. So, but it's good advice. Good advice. So Scott, thank you for being on the show. That's Scott Alpa from just collect incorporated. What's your website, Scott? Uh, www.justcollect.com and thank you Bob thank you Joe for having me it was my pleasure and uh, great show and you, your contact information is on that website too Scott correct yes it is wants it, to yeah, you can find link okay. find link or, my, and, or myself there great I look, I look okay. forward to wrestling you in the lobby in Atlantic City Scotty <laughs> I right, put on some weight, Joe. I'm ready for you. <laughs> Scott Alpha, uh, Just Collecting Corporate. Thanks for being on. All right, Joe, we're going to go into Thank our you. defensive formation, two-minute warning coming up. I'm going to hand off to you. What did you learn on tonight's show? Okay. Scott, I, I dig that guy. He's uh, Scott's that guy who will – and just who who will tell you who'll tell you like tell you like it is and uh some people are taken aback by that i've always found it refreshing which is why scott and i have always gotten along i dig that guy uh yeah he's fun yeah you gotta you gotta be you gotta be honest with with your customers and you gotta tell it like it is And, and you know for a lot of a lot of people it's a rude awakening that they're, you know, they're yeah. told what they feel, you know, they're walking on water, they're going to retire off of this collection. And it turns out, you know, the cards are in GVG or whatever, they're beaters, oh, whatever yeah. the case may be. 
And, uh, you know, it's tough. And, you know, you got to handle these people eloquently and professionally to say to them, you know, yep. okay, you, you, it has some value, but it's not the value what you were thinking of, so on and so forth. It's tough. You know, you know it's tough because a lot of people have preconceived notions, especially in any type of collectible. You know, what they have yeah. is better than anybody else's, and therefore it's worth much more money than uh, – than you know, than anything, any other collectibles in the market, or, or similar cards, or whatever the case might be, and I and I always go yeah. back to, I hate to say it, you know, I still get once in a while people will contact me and they say uh, this was my uncle's uh, 1990 score football set in the original red box. How much is it worth? Uh, and you know, and they get they get mad at me sometimes when I tell them that it has very little value. So you know, why don't you just keep it? And or you know donate it type of thing, and uh, you know I get some some people understand completely. Other people get really mad because they figure they got a five hundred dollars set there that's worth fifty cents, you know. So it's 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 a tough situation. It's not it's tough dealing with the public as we all know. So it's it's uh, always walking a fine line on. I had a a good friend here in Portland who reached out to me once. He's like, hey, I've got some uh, football cards. You know, from when I was a kid, I'd, I'd, I'd like to meet you and see if they're great, you know, what they're worth. I'm like, well, send me a couple pictures. He sends me, like, five pictures. And I'm like, and it's all modern stuff. I'm like, those are all useless. You know, I, you know, just, you know, you know, put them in a shoebox. And he's like, well, I think they're worth something. And I'm like, no, 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 not really. And he's like, well, how about I buy you a beer and you take a look at it? I'm like, okay, you got it. I mean, he's a good guy. He's a good friend. And I'm like. So we meet, yeah, yeah. order a man, order order a nice Manhattan, and I'm looking at his stuff, and I'm like, this card might be worth three dollars if it's at a PSA ten, and you know, and I brought my laptop, and I'm showing him, you know, looking cards up on eBay, and I'm like, yep, this is three bucks if it's great, it's not, and we went through about ten of them, and two drinks, and uh, and I'm like, you spent more on my two drinks than this entire set's worth, but hey, I really appreciate the drinks, you know, yeah, and uh, it, yeah, I had fun yeah. with it, I it, it was fun. You know, you know, just hanging out with a friend, but it must be that must be one of the hardest things to do is to, you know, hey, here's my Jim Brown. I just saw one sold for a quarter million dollars, and it's like, yeah, yours, yours is missing a quarter. It's only worth you know four hundred dollars. Yeah. It's got to be, yeah, especially if it's a 1992 All World Jim Brown that they got. And, uh, it's like, and it's. Uh, <laughs> they're thinking it's uh, a rookie card or whatever. It's it, you know it's sad in a way, and I I never made I never made fun of anybody over the years, and I I I really tested my patience a lot of time trying to tell people what you have isn't overly valuable, just put it away. Yada yada that that situation, and uh, it's it's just it's just not it's not an easy situation to be in, but it's part of business. It's part of the, the hobby at the same time. All right, we're down to two totally. minutes, and we're going we're gonna to be wrapping everything up. Um, again, next issue of Gridiron Greats, which will be out at the end of next week, is going to feature as our super collector, Mr. Joe Squires, and his collection. Ah. Nice article and uh, nice uh, pictures of your collection. I'm looking forward to it being published. And again, if you want any information on buying back issues or subscribing to Gridiron Greats magazine, Check out our website at gridirongreatsmagazine.com. Joe, we're going to be back next week, hopefully, uh, for another show. I'm working on a few guests. You're working on a few guests. So we're going yes, to have, uh, we're gonna have uh, the peak of the football season. We're going to have a, a, quite a few shows through the end of uh, – or the beginning of December. And then uh, we'll be back and wrapping up the season at the end of December. But in any event – um, this has been very educational tonight. Ed- educational tonight, and I really felt bad for Scott about that coll- his early collection. I, I, I probably would have <laughs> had the big one if, if my mom did that. And, yeah. uh, she, she was always respectful of my stuff. My father was a, a pack rat, so uh, he he liked collecting them. She understood my uh, dilemma when it came to sports stuff and football, and, and especially publications. And uh, I remember moving into the, uh, my first house when I got married the first time and moving all my publications. It was, it was scary, to say the least, but it had to be done. All right, we're down to a minute. Joe, any other thoughts before we close up? Uh, I love, love it. I'm, I'm humbled to be the uh, in the next upcoming, uh, you, know, uh, you know, article or uh, you know, publication. I appreciate you reaching out, Bob. Thank you very much. 
You're welcome. You're welcome. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Take care. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, Here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.